everybody and welcome back to the test screening. My name is Chloe. And my name is Billy. And we are back for another episode of Reviews. On today's episode, we've got The Colour Purple, All of Us Strangers, Foe and The Kitchen, which sounds a varied mix. Oh, it's It's been quite the week. I think this is the, the biggest sort of range of quality we've had since the episode we did that included Cocaine Bear. And um, we've got one great... <laughs> Uh, one one good, one horrendous, and one average. I'll let you guys decide which is which. <laughs> Take your guesses, place your bets. <laughs> That's it. We'll find out um, as the episode goes on. But before we go into all that, I've got our On This Day in Film History. And I've only got the one fact uh, this week, but it's quite an interesting one. How much do you know about the American rating system for films, Billy? <laughs> oh, a fair bit, but I wouldn't say my knowledge is extensive, so I think you could definitely blindside me with the fact here. So, in the, on this day, it is currently Saturday the 27th of January. I know they said February then, um, because what is time? Time is an illusion, and, you know, I'm clearly losing my mind. But... On Saturday the 27th, but in 1970, the American rating system modified the M rating to PG, and the M standed for mature audiences. So the rating system was originally created in 1968 in response to the Hayes Code. Um, if you don't, if you know anything about the Hayes Code, it was basically like a government censorship kind of thing where the government would decide what was and wasn't appropriate for American audiences. So this uh, rating system was brought in in order to give studios and filmmakers freedom to create the films they wanted to make without fear of government censorship so that the general public knew what they were getting into when they were walking into uh, a film, uh, into a theatre. So the R and X ratings were suggested by the National Association of Theatre Owners who were fearful of possible legal problems if children were allowed to see adult content. And in 1970, the M was changed to PG due to confusion whether or not M-rated films were suitable for children. So people saw the M, thought mature, and we didn't really know if that was fine to take your, you know, 10-year-old child to go and see. So that's why it was changed to PG. <laughs> that is very interesting. I, I, I love it. Just any sort of ambiguity in lettering or text that the general public conceives, they'll just twist and go, oh yeah, that works for me. And then they'll just walk in and wreak absolute chaos on proceedings. <laughs> oh yeah, my 10 year old's mature enough to go and see The Godfather. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I always like these things. I, I find it interesting like how our standards of those things have changed. And of course they had like the video nasties and um, in the 80s, which were, I think that's, that, that was that in the UK? Was that in America as well, where it was like a, a big fear over what children were being subjected to in the movies and that it could turn them all into psychopaths or something. So there was a big kind of cleanse of the films that you weren't allowed to see. But because a banned film is way more exciting than a film you're allowed to see when you're a child, it just made the, the films way more popular. And, yeah. We, um, like we had like a big horror boom in the, in the 80s. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, it's like, you know, you want you want to see things that are dangerous and that the authorities, you know, mm -hmm. say is not allowed and therefore it just makes it kind of radical and interesting and kind of throws that it's, it's it like any band song just goes straight to number one on the charts, like when back when songs in the 80s, 70s and 80s used to get banned. Yeah, the Video Nasty <laughs> thing was a lot more of a, a United Kingdom phenomenon um, by the, the term was kind of popularised by the, the National Viewers and Listeners Association in the UK. And it was essentially like a sort of a spate of low budget horror and exploitation films like um, I Spit on Your Grave and Driller Killer. I think Cannibal Holocaust was lumped in there as well. Yeah, and that was definitely one of yeah. them. Yeah. And um, yeah, the, the Crown Prosecution Service in the UK essentially sort of impounded, you know, I think it was like a list of 72 films and there was additional sort of 80 something kind of put on later. And they were just seen to violate the Obscene Publications Act of the 19, 1959. And yeah, it led to um, Parliament passing the Video Recordings Act in 1984. And there was um, a lot of confusion around, you know, the definition of obscene material in cinema. So, um, yeah, that was a really significant moment in 
um, in British censorship of cinema. There's a really there's a story that often makes me laugh, and I, I forget the name of the critic who was involved in it. But there was a critic who went to court during these trials and was standing in favour of a film called uh, Nightmares in a Damaged Brain. And they were, the court were kind of assessing whether or not the film was obscene and should be impounded and banned. And the court said to the critic, um, well, as a, as a piece of filmmaking, what's it like? And, he, and the critic goes, you know, well, it's, it's well executed. And the judge said something to the effect of, well, so was the invasion of Poland. <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of gives you an idea of what the films and the, and the critics who believed in the merit of these films artistically were up against. But no, that's a very interesting part of UK censorship cinema history. How how old were you when you first saw your first well X rated or eighteen rated in the in the UK film? Oh, that's a great question. I saw I saw things like. Cl- well, no, they were more 15s. I'm trying to think of the first 18 I watched. Well, it's kind of because some 18s that were 18s when they originally came out in the UK kind of were reclassified later. I think I saw Alien when I was 14. But I think I think Alien was mine as well. I think, mm. I, I think I would have been 16 or something when I saw Alien. I also remember seeing Jaws, but then that was reclassified, wasn't it? Because mm. Jaws is nowhere, it's not really an 18 these no. days. I think it might even be a 12, well, a 12 now. I think it, is, it, is it even a PG these days? <laughs> no, I think there is some gore in it. So I do think Yeah, but it looks stuff. like strawberry jam. <laughs> <I don't know laughs> the, the model of the guy with the eye popping out that comes out from the boat. It's just like the amazing jump yeah, scare, but not particularly convincing <laughs> anatomically. <laughs> Yes. I mean, yeah, Jaws is a great film, but I've I've got a feeling that you know what, I'm gonna just do a quick Google. What is Jaws rated? Age rating. It's it is PG, my dude. N- surely not. Oh, that's crazy. Jaws, <laughs> Jaws is a PG. It was an I, I was pretty sure it was an eighteen still by the time I watched it. <laughs> got reclassified. <laughs> Incredible, 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 incredible. The senses do make me laugh. Oh, yeah, me too. I, I mean, the, so the way things change, you know, attitudes change. I find it all quite interesting. So we're going to move on now to talk about what everybody's talking about, and that is Oscar nominations. We're not going to go through all the Oscar nominations like we did with the Golden Globes, but there are a few key points that we wanted to discuss today. So I'm going to let you lead the charge on this one, Billy. What were your reactions to some of the the Oscar nominations? I mean, you could, you know, we saw your Instagram stories, but I want like mm-hmm. the detail. I want the lowdown. Well, just to start with Best Picture, I think it's. I have yet to see American Fiction in the Zone of Interest, which we'll be covering next week due to their. That's when their release date in the UK is. But just looking at it now, most of the films that are nominated in the Best Picture category were in my top 10 of the year. So I think by virtue of that, it's one of the strongest or maybe the strongest best picture lineup we've had in several years. And whilst it is kind of, you know, more heavily weighted towards drama, there is some comedy and satire there in there, which is nice to see. In terms of like narrative and sort of genre within drama, it's, it is quite varied. And, you know, you've got a international, fe- you've got two international features in there actually um, with, Anatomy of a Fall in the Zone of Interest. And yeah, I just think it's a really, really excellent lineup. I would have liked to have seen May December in there, but you know, you can't have everything. And with the rest of the nominees, there weren't really a whole lot of surprises. A few pretty criminal snubs, though. I mean, everyone's sort of talking about Margot Robbie not getting one for Barbie or Greta Gerwig not getting one for Best uh, Director, which, which I think are pretty. I think it's pretty poor on the Academy's part, frankly, especially when Annette Benning was, I know we had a lot of great, really strong female lead performances in 2023, but Annette Benning in Nyad was not one of them. I'm just not a fan of that film at all. All the performances for that matter, I thought they were just hammy and just very sort of look at me awards attention grabbing performances and I just don't think they should be a bit Oscar baity. Yes, very Oscar baity. They baited the Oscars and they 
the Oscars fell for it. They're on the hook. Yeah, they always <laughs> tend to fall for at least one or two. And mm. yeah, so I don't, I, but, but then again, you know, I think the other four nominees are outstanding in that category. I think supporting actor is really, really solid. Um, no Leo DiCaprio for best actor. I mean, I mean yeah, to be fair. Yeah, like Margot Robbie and Leo being not being there is an interesting choice. <laughs> yes, it, it certainly is a choice on the Academy's mm. part. Um, again, I'm not going to pass full comment until I've seen Jeffrey Wright in American Fiction, but, you know, he's been working for a long time and hasn't got a whole lot of Oscar buzz before, so it's, it's nice to see him getting some recognition, but still, whether or not it's fully warranted is another matter. Although I, I'm a big fan of Coleman Domingo for his work in, he's actually in one of the films we're reviewing this week, The Colour Purple, and he was terrific in Euphoria, and he was really good. I mean, the more in Rustin, the more I see him in, the more, I'm real, the more I realise he's just, he's a great character actor. He just really researches really intently and extensively into the characters he's playing, into their experiences, and just really um, holistically embodies them. And that comes across on screen. The performance is a very distinct and I like that very much about his work. I think supporting actress is pretty weak, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, Jodie Foster's in there. America Ferreira's... I don't, I don't dislike America Ferreira's performance in Barbie, but she's not a highlight for me out of that cast. Um, and Daniel Brooks is very good in The Colour Purple. But again, you know, I thought there were more... You know, where, where is Julianne Moore? Where is Natalie Portman from May, December? You know, just criminally overlooked there. Well, then Devine Joy Randolph is very good in the holdovers. So I think a lot of the big snubs and big surprises coming from the acting categories and also director as well. I think you could have easily had, you know, Martin Scorsese out of the best director category and had either Greta Gerwig or Celine Song. Um, yeah, you'd, I don't... Swap out, you'd swap out um, Martin Scorsese out of that lot? To be honest, yeah. I mean, as much That's as... That's interesting. I, that, I wouldn't have expect. I wouldn't have... Said that for you. I mean, t oh, actually, Anatomy Before. Well, I, I think Anatomy Before is quite well directed in that it, in how intimate and complex it gets with how it frames the central characters and the, and how that sort of interplays with how we're sort of judging the characters in the courtroom setting and how we kind of like they really put them under the microscope and how they maybe cause the viewer to look for things that maybe aren't there, which is entirely, you know, the sort of trial by media, trial by, you know, innocent until proven guilty theme that's in Anatomy before. So I think that's, and obviously she's a really great female director, so I think that's warranted. And Oppenheimer's a very big, you know, directorial feat in terms of its non-chronological structure and how subjective the experience is with Oppenheimer and folding that in with the historical aspects of the of the story, poor things in Yorgos Lanthimos, you know, just incredible, weird, anarchic visual style all the way through. Again, you know, not seen as end of interest, but that looks very uniquely sort of pulled back and isolating and stilted in the way it's shot, which I think will go very, very profoundly and powerfully with the subject matter. As much as it's, it was a real obvious, obvious task to render such a large and you know, vast subject and period of history in Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, I think that's, you know, the credit for that should partially go to Thelma Schumacher's edit, edit. And I don't think it's one of his most creatively or uniquely shot films, Killers of the Flower Moon, in, on it, in all honesty. That doesn't mean I think it's a bad directing job at all. I just think when you had so many strong works this year, I think there were... You know, you think about how po poetic and sort of emotive and romantic and emotionally intuitive, you know, the space that Celine Song creates in something like Past Lives, or how vibrant and satirical and sort of zany a lot of the world created in Barbie is. Yeah, I just, I, I honestly, I stand by that. I, I think he was not necessarily one of the five greatest this year. Interesting, interesting. Well, we're, all, we're going to have to find out. So the Oscars are in March. It's on Mother's Day. We're going to have to. We're going to have to see what wins. But for now, we're going to have to move on to our reviews. 
I feel like the color purple is going to be one of one of the ones that you enjoyed, but um, this is based off a book, and then there was a film adaptation. This is a musical as well. Was the previous film a musical as well? No, the previous film adaptation from 1985 was a drama, more straight drama, um, right. directed by Steven Spielberg, of all people. Famously uh. said he, he didn't feel like he should direct the film because he felt like a director of colour, a black director, would connect more with the material and be able to render it with more authenticity. And it was, of all people, Quincy Jones convinced him to to direct it and he Interesting. in the end obliged i don't know the whole details of the intricacies of how that conversation went with him eventually deciding mm. to take up the directorial mantle but he did in the end direct it and it was nominated for seven academy awards i actually watched it into just a little bit of background um i have read part of the novel um i think not due to the quality of the novel. I think I just had too much going on at the time and I didn't end up finishing it. But I read enough that mm-hmm. I have a good sense of the tone and the essence of, you know, the feeling of the story and the sort of the writing style of Alice Walker and how sort of hopeful and soulful it is in parts and how very frank and uncompromisingly blunt it is in others. You know, you read the opening page the opening line of the novel and I just went whoa okay this is not pulling any punches at all um but really great what I did read and I this actually made me want to go back to it um but (laughs) the Steven Spielberg film I'd heard from some kind of some mixed opinions on it but I was not expecting to respond to it in quite the way I did it's a terrible film it's really it's actually really bad and I'm not the only one who thinks so if you look at online reviews I mean there are so many people online who just who call it a straight up bastardization of the novel and right from the opening moments i don't think i've ever i can't remember seeing a film in a long time where i just started watching it and i instantly just went schmaltz i instantly just went sugar right from the start and i think it's just i think steven stuck to his guns i think he was just the wrong director for that material his like really palatable sentimental kind of um, very rousing style of filmmaking that sort of appeals to a lot of has a lot of wide mainstream appeal just wasn't befitting of this material at all and it just leads to a lot of moments that you have great actors delivering the most twee stilted cartoony you know um, cring- cringeworthy lines and of dialogue and just performances that I'm just like this, this just it, it's not just that this isn't uh, this is a bit rickety or this is a bit flawed in places. It, I was just watching it for like the full two and a half hours going, this is bad and consistently bad all the way, almost all the way through. So yes, the bar, got to say, wasn't very high going into this new version of The Colour Purple. But I did, it's such a great story of a a young black woman who is um, separate, who at the start of the film is pregnant by her father and has her, her baby's taken away from her and is then separated from her sister. And um, it begins in sort of 19, uh, the very, very early 1900s, going into sort of the 1910s and then the 1930s. She's married off to a very abusive um, black man in uh, another part of Georgia in, uh, in America. And it's just essentially about her struggles and finding her own identity and voice as a black woman at a time where obviously there were racial tensions, but obviously a lot of you know, poverty and difficulty finding a place in the world in that time in American history. And also just you know, undergoing sexism, racism, and domestic abuse. So it's not a story that one would want there to be, sent- over- want to be overly sentimental or sugary or insincere. And this new take, it was obviously quite bold due to the fact that whilst it is a very faithful recreation plot-wise, it's, it is a very large-scale Hollywood musical. And I, going in, was pretty sceptical of that because you know, considering key elements of the story are about child abuse, domestic violence, and the degradation of black women, I wasn't sure if you know, sparkling song and dance and musical numbers were going to deliver these issues thoughtfully or if it was kind of just going to be in poor taste. But then again, you know, we have had 
very good reimaginings of novels and previous films in the past. So I was hoping that it was going to deliver. And I did have my doubts earlier on while watching it. But by the end, this version of The Colour Purple did win me over. And I think it manages to work for a couple of reasons. I think the first being that the performances this time around are far more committed to the characters' personalities and dramatically robust. You know, I, th- I think Whoopi Goldberg and Danny Glover and Oprah Winfrey in the original version are doing their best, doing their darndest, but I think just the way the script is written and the way they were directed, it just, it just comes across as just cartoonish and you know, a medley of caricatures and moments of twee sensitivity and just gestures. I'm just, I'm just going, this is all wrong. This is not natural or believable at all. And here the emotions are delivered with a lot more heft. There's also a lot more nuance here. You know, case in point, Coleman Domingo's terrific turn as Albert, the abusive husband. And Danny Glover's take is, is really overripe in its aggression. And whilst he doesn't have, you know, the monst- whilst Common Domingo doesn't have the monstrous quality of Danny Glover, I found his performance a lot more interesting because he, he is delivering something a lot more pernicious, conniving, sort of poisonous and nasty, but in a more low-key fashion with the occasional sort of you know, spike in volume and aggression, which I felt was a lot more believable for a character like this. And all you have to do is hear his, his vocal tone and just the way he speaks, the much more sort of subdued and sort of... Uh, stealthy, stealthily abusive way he speaks to, to be convinced of the superiority in Domingo's characterization of this, of this person. And considering I, I saw some musicals recently that were, you know, Wonka and Mean Girls, which were either unmemorable or just straight up poor, it's actually great to see a musical where the music is actually really excellent this time around. It's just, a, I mean, I am kind of slightly biased because I'm a big, big soul gospel and African-American roots music fan. But that doesn't mean, you know, I haven't heard stuff that I haven't taken to. And it's a, it's a pleasure on a contextual level to see music like that featured so prominently and at the forefront of a major movie musical. But it's also just very polished from a songwriting perspective. You know, it's, it's stylistically varied too. You get these soaring but not trite solo numbers, more low down kind of swaggering rootsy blues tunes, these sharp call and response lines in the more rousing group choruses that aren't overcooked in these more traditionally gospel and soul-inspired tunes. They're catchy but emotionally potent. I just, I've been listening to the music a lot since I got out, and that's always a good sign of a soundtrack in a musical. I would, I would encourage anybody just to check out the music. It's, it's really, really enjoyable, but serves the emotional arcs of the story very nicely as well, particularly in the, the final moment. And I think it's interesting because it's an interesting examination, you know, looking at this and looking at the original 1985 adaptation where just a discussion around genre and form and what that does for a work because I think part of the reason I hated the 80s version was because it was, it was so insincere and cloying and sanitised and unconvincing. And, and, you know, makeup of genre is key in the comparison between the two because a musical does bring a certain amount of palatable sweetness and slickness in production, historically, in the genre, particularly in American musicals. And because the formal because of the formal makeup of the movie musical and what we have in our minds going in, I think we more readily accept and buy into that as an audience. Whereas, you know, the eighties version is clearly pitched as a serious awards inviting drama. So then the abundance abundance of schmaltz in that film just becomes insufferable because it so obviously has no business being there. And this new version you know, also succeeds in giving solid screen time waiting to more scenes of direct drama. Um, you know, we're not getting songs peppered all the way through. And it balances out the series of the story really nicely with the levity of the musical numbers. So I think generally a decent success here on the part of The Colour Purple. All that being said, though, I do, even though I did like this, and despite it working against the odds, I do still have a question about whether or not, based on what I know of the novel, if a musical was still the best mode of storytelling for this adaptation. You know, you can see the harder edges of the story are still being softened. And I don't feel you fully understand the depth of the women's struggles at times, even though it does pull that back later on. And there are sort of redemptive arcs handed out to certain characters late in the day that don't feel entirely built out and earned. Um, even 
even with their more layered personalities and the more balanced tone this time around. Um, I don't think Alice Walker's text has been quite perfected on screen yet, but you know, count me as pleasantly surprised that this went over as well as it did and that I did enjoy it and was moved by it in the end. I would give this a B. Definitely seek this out. I think it's I think it's interesting because when you have like such dark source material and and you know stuff about abuse and things like that I think it is really hard to translate that to the screen only because I think you can end up having an audience that's numb to it if you show too much I think in a book it's a bit different where you can you have the time and the space to fully explore an issue if you're just showing it you're not inside the character's head as much it can just seem like needless violence and quite i mean obviously anything like this is unpleasant to watch but i think it can end up becoming desensitized in a way to to bring it fully to the screen does that make sense yeah um, no, it's, it's a very complex balancing action i've seen yeah films that kind of went too hard on it and bleakly and didn't have i thought enough levity and didn't bring it characterize the victims enough the survivors enough and I've seen films that just and read books as well, and that I mean, you and me had many conversations about the novel A Little Life and how that I think <laughs> totally misrepresents that topic. Um, and you know, yeah, I've seen films that just didn't give enough development to that side of the story at all. So yeah, it's it's not an easy task. Um, mm. So I, I don't I don't envy the vil- filmmakers in that respect. For trying to having to try and find that balance, but um, yeah, I I hope this I hope this story does get the perfect representation on screen one day. Um, but for now, I think this musical version that we have is a really solid take on it. I think maybe a stage show. I, I think it, it has been a, sh- a stage show in the past. I'd be interested. You know, you're talking a bit before about like um, what different forms can do for a work it would be interesting to actually compare across all the mediums so we've got the book we've got two films from different you know eras and you've got a a theatre stage show and I'd be interested to actually have a look at that and see what that looks like and how does that make you feel differently about the the characters um yeah a really interesting study and we're We've got to move on now, but even though we could talk about these kind of these things all day, um, on to all of us strangers. I have been looking forward to this <laughs> for a long time. I think ever since I saw the original um, promo image show up on my Instagram feed, I was like, Paul Meskel and Andrew Scott together <laughs> in a film. Count me the in so yes please tell me what you thought about this i like you and like many people ever since i saw the the log line and the promotional image of it promotional images of all of the strangers i've been very excited of it and also because i'm a tremendous fan of andrew haig's previous films you know you've got weekend which i think is an underrated you know classic of modern LGBTQ cinema, won the Audience Award at South by Southwest. Um, If we were doing an episode on underrated films, I would absolutely talk about that one. Um, You've got very understated romantic drama with 45 Years, with um, Charlotte Rampling, which was also terrific. And then you've got Lean on Pete, which was a really beautiful um, sort of animal and human-centric relationship drama about a boy and his horse. Um, three just real home runs. He's re- he's got really solid filmography so far. He's got really consistent themes of commitment, longing, dependency. And he's got really really emotive touches with the camera, um, but also a distinct perspective. You know, his films all have a distinct atmosphere, despite the thematic through line of them all, um, which I think is a sign of a really talented director. And all of the strangers had received the most awards buzz of all his films. It's been shout out at the Oscars. Unfortunately, but it has does have six BAFTA nominations, I believe, and it's had a rapturous critical response. And having now seen it, it's not hard to see why. Story is that we have Andrew Scott, who's a 
struggling screenwriter who's facing writer's block and appears to be in a state of a sort of sort of subdued and sort of shut away emotional turmoil, living in an apartment block that doesn't seems to have nobody else inhabiting it aside from a sort of kind of mysterious younger man played by the ever lovely Paul Meskell, and who there seems to be a burgeoning relationship between. Um, Andrew Scott's trying to write a script about his relationship with his parents, and he travels back to his family home and village just outside London in an effort to sort of reconnect with that part of his life, and discovers quite incredibly that his parents' house is still there and still untouched and in the exact same condition it was when he left it, and his parents, who died when he was 12, are alive and well preserved in the exact same age and clothes and look and style that they had when they passed away and they see him and greet him as though they were expecting him and sort of their they interact over the course of the film and their relationship sort of changes and updates as Andrew Scott brings them in on details of his life now and the relationship between Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott starts to blossom as well now very very you know, almost get you almost sort of know going in that this is going to be a real lump in your throat uh, story, uh, just from that description, and it certainly lives up to that. And I think in many ways it's Andrew Haig's most accomplished and thoughtful display of filmmaking yet. It has this gorgeously hazy, enveloping, and luscious atmosphere with this you know the very luminous lighting and cool, airy view of the London's cityscape from the apartment building. This combined with one of my favourite scores of the past year, I mean just stunning and expertly befitting music of the material, these vast and celestial sounding mountainous layers of ambient synth chords that feel as though they're kind of originating from another dimension which is very fitting for the fantastical sort of otherworldly nature of the material. And you know you get this very delicate pacing as well, it kind of lends this almost say sense of intoxication and inebriation in the film that the film kind of almost begins in. It's got this lovely hint of inquisitiveness, though, that's sort of drawn out by the sharper, brighter tones of some of the keyboards in the score, which kind of nicely drives the opening moments of the narrative forward towards the story's more surreal elements. And this mood, it really beautifully mirrors the, the initial sort of emotional suspension and enduring longing that Andrew Scott's character finds himself in. And then as we get into more states of sort of emotional stability later on, and solidity. The free-floating texture of the camera work, it kind of puts down roots and becomes more grounded as characters grow towards, you know, more secure places. It treats the more surreal elements of the story with a really lovely, like, sort of sense of the ordinary. It just is very sort of naturalistic and sort of it doesn't make a big deal out of it. Sort of in much in the same way that I thought Petite Maman, the Celine Siama film from previous years, has a similarly fantastical scenario but kind of just treat it in this very po-faced ordinary way although all of the strangers is altogether more um psychedelic and abstract in certain ways but still very sort of emotionally grounded and honest there's been a lot of praise rightly sort of given to andrew scott but honestly i think all four of the main cast members here are extraordinary the performances they're so they're so mesmerizingly natural and deeply soulful even the most sort of ordinary conversations between the characters have line deliveries and sort of the tiniest gestures and facial ballets that make so clear the weight of the past events in their lives and relationships and how these are playing off each other in these moment-to-moment conversations it's some of the most nuanced and dynamic interplay between actors i've seen in quite a while and at its best it's utterly captivating the characters are also shot very Intimately, and I think that intimacy it kind of not only pertains to how heartfelt and touching and, and emotionally naked these relationships are in a lot of scenes, but also confining. It, the, it can nurture, but also trap you. The past. It's got this very profound and lovingly explored idea that the of how focusing on the past can constrict you, and how you, you know, the necessity of moving on. And the story to me is interesting, comparison-wise, it's almost like a more literal and physical rending of that. You know, after Sun and the, the figurative journey that the characters go through in that of kind of examining their memories and bargaining with the relationships and what they learned from them at the time, it, All of Us Strangers feels like a much more literal rendering 
of that story. You know, you catch your breath at times from how moving it all is here. If I have some gripes, there's some structure-related stuff and some elements with how the film deals with the supernatural elements later on that I, I would have maybe changed slightly. There's Towards the back end of the film, it takes a very audacious, surreal swing with the plot, which kind of upends some of this really exquisitely lilting sense of ambiguity um, we had earlier on. And it's quite daring since it occurs so close to the end of the film and after the film's emotional climax. And I think its incorporation into the final portion lacks some screenwriting finesse. I think in the moment I did find it somewhat perplexing and potentially too substantial of a credibility stretch. And I feel like it had, if it had hints threading through more consistently, it would fit into the overall narrative arc more cohesively. That being said, having sat with it for a bit after having seen it a couple of days ago, I do feel it quite alluringly feeds into the message of giving yourself so wholly to a person and, and reconciling your feelings out of the past, whereby your expression of love can then transcend realms or life and death. And the final moments to that end are very beautiful in that sense. Also, you don't get a lot of detail up front about Andrew Scott's turmoil, meaning the initial dive into the fantastical, it doesn't hit with quite the impact I necessarily expected or wanted to. Um, and also the film reminded me, in a sense of how, sp how, in how spacious the drama can be of past lives, but sometimes the, the gaps in the dialogue here in All of Us Strangers, we, you know, without the sp some of the specificity and the emotional implications of the dialogue, it can lead to some awkwardness and some slightly sluggish pacing. But in so many other sections, it's so emotionally engrossing and and heart-rendering and sort of just delicate and empathetic that it's, it's very easy to overlook that and I think the ending does work better than I still initially felt in the moment having reflected on it since and I I was really swept up in this I thought it was I thought it was wonderful I was feeling an A- minus at the time the more I sit with it the more I feel like I want to I want to move towards an A some of that structural stuff is nagging at me a little bit though but this is Still a really, really terrific piece of work. I'm not sure if at the moment it quite cracks the top 10 of the year for me, but that's more of a testament to how strong the top 10 is than the quality of this individual film. I'm going to stick to my guns and say an A- minus for now for all of us strangers, but this could potentially grow. And I think it's absolutely worth seeing for the performances alone. It's really, really remarkable. From one Paul Meskel film... To another, <laughs> we're now going to talk about Foe. Uh, Foe has Saoirse Ronan and Paul Meskel in it. And I've, I've read the description, but I, st I don't really get <laughs> what it's about. Um, uh -huh. It's uh, probably like deliberately vague. Um, this is a, I, I believe this is a Netflix creation. Is that right? It's Amazon Prime. Or Prime. Prime. I knew it was one of them. There's, there's always like, you know, it's one of the big three, usually. Um, so, yeah, what's this all about? Um, is it as good as All of Us Strangers? Uh, what is Paul Meskel doing this time? <laughs> so, well, if you, considering that you didn't get the greatest sense of the plot from the online description, I have to say you're not going to get a much better idea from the film. I have to say, and <laughs> oh, we are we are in for a drop in quality, ladies and gentlemen. So, Foe centres around an American couple living in a dystopian future where water and a lot of on Earth resources have dried up. They are a married couple living out in the sticks who are visited by a member of the government who sort of conscripts Paul Meskel's character to um, head away to a planet. Um, for sort of mining resources work, and to be, you know to be replaced by an AI sort of version of him, so that his wife doesn't become sort of lonely. But of course, you know they argue that that is just totally ludicrous, and that an AI version of him would be a shell of his former self and just a poor substitute. And I have to say, and and that is kind of intertwined with an exploration. When I say exploration, more <laughs> more like a very very limp overview of 
their marriage and the tumultuous nature of their um, romantic relationship. And that's honestly about as much of a coherent description of the plot as I can give you, because man, it's it's quite it's quite astonishing how you have two great actors and a very kind of interesting premise at the start of it that um, that is just totally and utterly mishandled and just fumbles the presence of two amazingly gifting actors as hard as this does. And I wanted, I was, I was ready for this going in. You know, it's it's a human set grounded sci-fi story and I am a big fan of those but a, la- a lacklustre film that goes for broke and tries to commit to an ambitious story but kind of doesn't swings and just misses and ends up just being a bit overwrought and misguided is one thing now a bad film that carries itself with the aura and attitude of something deeply meaningful and emotive and independent which is actually totally narratively barren and you know j- just becomes very irritating very fast and even borderline unbearable by the end. In fact, no, this, there's nothing borderline about it. This was unbearable and actually became unbearable probably about <laughs> a third of the way in. Oh, Jesus. You know, everything about Foe's presentation you know, suggests serious dramatic heft, the impassioned, you know, feverish string sections in the score, the poetically in- introspective pianos, the richly warm, glowing lighting and clean widescreen cinematography, the understated performances. It's... Everything about the technical aspect is very sort of accomplished and proficient. It's actually a, a total marvel at how vacuous the the final film ends up being. I'm all for a drama that uses quietly environmental storytelling and creates atmosphere and ideas out of the surrounding location. This is not one of those. And, you know, works that take more of a tone poem approach and leave great space between the dialogue to elicit detail in the emotional dynamics between the characters is fine, is great. You know, past lives, my God. Um, all of us strangers. But, you know, Foe thinks it's doing all of this, but in actual fact, it's the most empty 105 minutes I've sat through in recent memory. Do you know what I thought while watching this? Do you know... Do you remember when you went to see that preview of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I think is a masterpiece and I absolutely love? I know you like it, but I'm not... But I'm not especially enamoured with it. Do you remember when you yeah. said to me that you kind of just eventually in the film, you kind of just thought, ah, oh, yes, another scene of longingly staring at each other without a yeah. whole lot going on. Imagine <laughs> that I thought, wow, this is what Chloe felt like watching Portrait of a Lady on Fire, but like <laughs> fire. But amplified by like four and with oh, you know, God. titanic pretension. There are so many like protracted logging gazes that that have the most limp and generic exchanges of dialogue about not feeling like I'm connected with oneself. And I just went, oh, oh my God. God, just spare Ooh. me, Christ. I mean, just. That hurt just, me. That hurt me, you just saying that. <laughs> I know. I just think there's there's an entire like monologue about like dirt and fingernails that Paul Meskel, God love him, he delivers with the most gusto I've seen from an actor <laughs> in a while, and it just he just he tries his hardest, and he just can't sell it for love nor money, and it's mm. not his fault. I was just like, this is just writing that oh. thinks it's really symbolic and metaphoric when it actually just isn't at all, which just utter existential drivel masquerading as existential wisdom. Wisdom. I'm just like, oh. Just... And it was honestly the longest 100 minutes I've spent with a film in quite a long time. I mean, there's no explanation given to why they're struggling in their relationship at all. I'm just like, you know... The, the depiction and stunted progression of their relationship is is a, is a mess. Its observa- observations on marriage are the most perfunctory and sterile I've seen in, you know, in a very long time. It it makes like the and this isn't necessarily a slight of Friends. It makes like the gender the gender politics in Friends look like Nietzsche. It it's like <laughs> it it totally beh- wastes like the sci-fi premise as well. It. It doesn't have any creative law or world or world building to like engage on that level. The plot floats around really loosely and meanderingly. It's got like it actually ends up rendering most of the plot totally incomprehensible. I was like 50 minutes in and going, where has this gone? What is happening? And <laughs> and part of me going, Am I just missing subtext? I'm just like, no, it's not that I'm missing subtext, it's that there is no subtext. 
and the direction and performances aren't amorous or tactile enough for the film to even get by on just pure raw emotional feeling without much explanation and you know structurally it's totally devoid of anything coherent it almost lacks a decipherable plot um it i it, it said so little i can't believe it said as little as it did and there are just so many scenes that feel like they're doing nothing for the overarching story and it's all compounded by the unabashed calamity that is the, the chemistry of the central duo i adore Sosha Ronan and Paul Mescal, this is not it. I have seen more mm. chemistry betwo- between, you know, dis- dis- I've seen more chemistry between deteriorating pieces of furniture than these two, which <laughs> it feels quite shocking to say, but it's honestly true. I can't blame them all at all for this, though. The inert direction, the, la- the incoherent plot and the pretentious dialogue, it kneecaps a lot of chance they could have had with being able to connect on screen. And they're they really do try and commit to the material, but it's just not happening here. Um, and they can't seem to ignite one ounce of affinity between each other on screen. Which just makes me think whoever screen tested them clearly missed the fact that they shouldn't have been cast together. This, I don't, aside from it looking somewhat nice lighting-wise and certain things, I basically have nothing good to say about this. This was actually horrendous. I, you know, it's interesting because we have like a a poppy girly mess last week and then which I'm I'm I gave an F and now I'm giving an F to something that feels like it should be much more dramatically heavy and atmospheric and actually was even more of a chore to sit through the mean girls foe F just F for foe can't do <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say F F stands for <laughs> foe it does indeed stay as far away from this as humanly possible do not waste your time <laughs> Oof, 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 oof. Well, you know what? I'm. I, I think I might avoid adding that one to the watch list <laughs> for this. Uh, for this round, we're going to end on a film called The Kitchen, and my mind instantly goes to The Bear and Boiling Point <laughs> and all the other like kitchen dramas that we've had recently chef's dramas is this within that vein or is it something completely different it is something in fact completely different incidentally my head goes to the film the kitchen from i think it was 2019 maybe 2018 um with a it was a mafia wife focused drama with elizabeth moss do you remember that film no actually well that um i don't think it got particularly good reviews and um yeah it it kind of disappeared without a lot of fanfare but um but yes same title but kind of very different subject matter as well. But my kind of mind went there with that. Um, the Kitchen is um, on Netflix now. It's currently quite high up in the Netflix charts. And it's co-written and co-directed and co-produced by Daniel Kaluuya, um, Academy Award winner for Judas and the Black Messiah. Interesting. Get, Interesting. Get Out fame. Yeah, so really great pedigree. And I'm a big fan of Daniel Kaluuya, his work. And also he just seems like a really lovely um, creative soul when he gets interviewed. And um, just seems to have a lot of like community spirit, and seems to love the the storytelling creative process. So, and and considering he starred in one of the earliest and most sci-fi and influenced episode of episodes of Black Mirror, Fifteen Million Merits, and has gone on to star in two of the biggest modern horror films of recent years, you know, Nope and Get Out, and has worked with Jordan Peele, it would suggest that you know he has uh, grown to know his way around utilizing genre filmmaking as a framework to explore you know pertinent socio-political and human issues which is very much what the kitchen is it's a dystopian um gritty uh sci-fi thriller set in a near future in 2020 in 2044 in london um where a multicultural uh neighborhood called the kitchen is the um which sort of this very dilapidated sort of multi-stage sort of vast monolithic um sort of strain of apartment buildings in a part of London is sort of the last strain of social housing that people have sort of gone, sort of taken up refuge in. The rest of social housing has been eradicated throughout London and people are, there is sort of this conflict between people who are sort of staying in solidarity in this building, which is being raided by police who are trying to sort of drag the residents out of the building and people who are um, residents there, but are also trying to take up you know, this very sort of gentrified 
um, slick, sanitised, uh, more modern housing that is taking up other sections of London. So you've got some really interesting ideas of class divide, gentrification, and sort of um, yeah, just social divides um, in a city that is usually as diverse and multicultural as London. So really good stuff um, and really good starting point for, um, for a premise. And I had every faith going in that Daniel Kaluuya would handle it well. And he does, and, and also the co-director and co-writer as well, he does show some, a certain directorial flair in a visually stylistic sense. The very kind of opening moments of the kitchen, they, they carry a quite potent intensity. These driving gimbal shots, tracking behind motorcycles as they tear through. You know, slum-like shantytown areas, the tight handheld angles focused on car windows and door shutters as places are being places are being robbed or raided. The ang- the the setting is also quite striking with the dilapidated structure and aesthetic of the titular kill- kitchen housing estate in how monolithic and imposing it is, but also kind of textured and that texture is reflected in the, the culturally vibrant interactions and parties between the local community. There are some stolid steps towards interesting world building here. There's also kind of interestingly Ian Wright, you know, famous football, football, ex-footballer and now football commentator playing a kind of Samuel L. Jackson do the right thing, um, radio DJ kind of um, uh, role uh, as the, the sort of the head, the, uh, the leader of the kitchen that, um, that plays music and sort of, sort of spouts propaganda through the, through the Tannoy system. And he's actually quite convincing. I was, I kind of went in going, oh God, is this going to be a bit, bit of Vanity Project-esque? Is this going to be a bit, you know, cringeworthy from Mr. Wright? But actually, he sold it. He sold it well. So props to him for that. In the case of the, the overall film on a narrative level, though, the kitchen actually ends up being, not nearly to the same extent as Foe, but it actually did end up being quite a hollow and inconsequential experience for me. And I felt that came down to two main reasons. For a dystopian story, when you where you'd think message and moral is pertinent, it's a, it's surprisingly murky on a thematic level. It's like it can't decide what it wanted to focus on, and in you know in the in the opening montage, we're presented with a juxtaposition between the tensions of the residents of the kitchen, the moves bet- between you know overcrowding and camaraderie, and the crime and oppression by the government, in particular the conflict our central character between taking to a new home and staying to show solidarity and loyalty with the people of the kitchen. Sadly, save for some limp dialogue and brief scenes on the topic later on, this is about as deeply as we explore that side of the character. He goes on to have a relationship with a, a younger boy who is kind of, again, caught between these two worlds, you know, between a potentially better future, but also kind of embracing the bond and relationship he builds up with the community in the kitchen. But again, this... This relationship has very little depth, very little nuance, very very little detail. Um, the character drama is actually, it, it's understated to a fault. There's so much space in between dialogue. It just feels like there is no character progression. It just, it doesn't feel tranquil or organic. It feels paper thin and even, even empty. You know, so many scenes feature characters tiptoeing around discussing anything of actual emotional substance, meaning you never feel connected to these individuals or feel any definition of their arcs. You know, the sparseness feel leaves a lot of scenes feeling inert. And whilst it wasn't, you know, as you know, as much of an unbearable slog as Foe was, you know, and how pretentious and overly arty that um film's stylistic approach was, I kinda again I got fifty minutes to an hour in, you know, two thirds of the way through and I kind of felt like not not much of note had really happened. And the script, you know, only gives a very cursory and surface level look at the societal context of the film that it's set in. And I think it sacrifices substantial exploration of the political tensions and intricacies of the community. And actually much in the way of a focused plot to hone in on a micro character level. But like I said, there's not much detail given to that sort of more intimate character drama. And... I feel like the film tries to get by on some sort of social realist, you know, observational scenes of them shooting down drones or sort of partying in the community. But again, without the character depth in the relationships to back that up, it just ends up feeling, you know, a presentation of social issues rather than 
an exploration of them, which I think in the end, the kitchen has some really good pedigree, and I think there's the bones of a compelling and thought-provoking story here, but in the end, unfortunately, it just delivers staggeringly little in the way of food for thought or plot development, which is a real shame for Daniel Kaluuya, because I was really pulling for him on this one, but in the end, I think what we got was kind of just average and, again, very insubstantial and inconsequential. Uh, a C for the kitchen. C is not too bad, though. I mean, is this um, Daniel Kaluuya's directorial debut? Has he, has he directed before? No, yeah, this is, his, this is his writing, producing and directing debut. In that case, I think there's like, some filmmakers come right out of the gate with something perfect and we never hear from them again. This <laughs> sounds like it's the start of maybe a new era in his career. So I think it sounds like at least the premise and there are some, you know, at least some fun ideas, some interesting ideas going on in the background of this, whether or not they're executed to the, to the way we might want. Uh, is another thing, but I think there's very clearly like this feels like an origin story for Daniel Kaluuya. You know, I, I've got a feeling that we're gonna get some more stuff from him that might develop, and as he as he grows as a filmmaker, maybe some of those things that aren't quite clicking with the kitchen will start to click for him in future projects. So. I, I think it's, a, I, from what I've heard, it's an interesting concept and he goes into it with the right intentions and it's more just in the execution that these things just don't quite work. There's maybe, a, there's a good film in here somewhere. Yeah. It I, just needs a little bit of help hmm, getting it, to the, <laughs> getting a bit some, further up your ranking list. Some teasing out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think yeah. there's, you know, not every... Not every filmmaker can come out with a debut as powerful as something like as After Sun, you know. It's and it, it's really good to see that dystopian sci-fi is still alive and well with things like this, and that it's you know reaching a wide a widespread audience, and that you know important ideas are being presented about you know gentrification and class divide in this, and I think it definitely shows a lot of promise. I just think it, you know some of the execution was fumbled think you know maybe some more drafts of the script but i think you know i think there's certainly uh, the makings of a very talented creative team in here um the direction was certainly there i think there just needs to be some more script work and i and i don't doubt that that was may very well come later on so i'm i'm not i'm not writing him off just yet holding out hope for dan Kaluuya. <laughs> just um we uh, just didn't quite um clear the hurdle here at the first stage, but here's to doing it later. And that is everything for this week. So, Billy, what have we got coming up in the next episode? So we have, like I said earlier, the two big Oscar contenders, American Fiction and The Zone of Interest. We also have the, I think you're going to like this one, the sort of Kingsman-esque uh, spy espionage romp with Henry Cavill and Bryce Dallas Howard Argyle um, which looks mm -hmm, very mm -hmm. fun and quite a novel concept with um, the way it looks at kind of spy fiction and spy writing and then we also have you can't tell me I don't do my job guys you can't tell me <laughs> I, I only pick the things I want to watch because we are going to do anyone but you Sydney Sweeney and Glenn Powell led rom-com that oh, has been you brave man it's you been brave brave soul it's been igniting TikTok so with all the trends <laughs> and has been um, in mm. cinemas in cinemas for a fair bit of time now and I was I was skirting around it but I feel like now's the time I feel like I've got to commit Whereas they're both they're both very pretty people I feel like you can maybe switch off your brain for a bit and <laughs> I uh, yeah mm. I, I've I've seen things, I've heard things. This does not look like an amazing film, but it almost <laughs> looks like it might be funny for all the wrong reasons, and that excites me. Maybe we'll get a rant. We shall see. Maybe we'll get a rant. Oh, if I hope we get a rant. I like a good Billy rant. You love a rant. <laughs> I do love a rant. 
And on that note, thank you for listening, everybody. Please join us next week. Don't forget to like and subscribe on YouTube and follow the podcast across Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, you know, wherever you want to listen to us. We are we're everywhere. We are everywhere. And yeah, looking forward to the to the next batch of reviews. And we will see you in the next episode. Bye for now. Bye.